uh, as, he's, as Jesus is on the cross, we're going we're gonna to see a couple things here. So let's, uh, before we get there, I want, I want you to go to a passage of Scripture, John, uh, Luke 23. There's a, on his procession to the cross, there's a, there's a section of Scripture that as I was studying, I'm like, you know, I think I've read this a bunch of times, but I seem to just gloss over it. And uh, I, won't, I don't have this in the notes, but uh, even as, as after I printed the notes, I'm like, why do we gloss over this section? Oftentimes, at least I've found myself doing it. Uh, Luke 23, we're going we're gonna to pick up in verse uh, 27 there. We know that there are going to be people all around, the, uh, all around Jesus Christ as he's going, going through the, uh, the, the march toward the crucifixion, and then when he ends up being eventually put on the cross. And oftentimes we look at verse 26, Luke 23, and that, you know, there was, they're laid away, um, and when he was uh, led away, uh, sorry, I'm looking at different, different notes here. Uh, and when they led him away, they uh, laid upon him one Simon of Cyre- Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene, coming out of the country, and had him take Jesus across and bear it. And oftentimes we just jump from there to, okay, you know, he took the cross and he, Simon took the cross and helped Jesus Christ and they went up to Jerusalem. And when that burden was lifted off Jesus, Luke gives us an account specific to Luke only, not found in Matthew, Mark, although they, uh, they talk about that there were others who were pressing around him and that they were, they were present. But there, it says, and there uh, was following him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him, lamenting Jesus. But here Luke says that Jesus took a moment here. In the middle of, in the middle of his uh, procession to the cross, there's one final lament by Jesus Christ here. He, he lays out this lament, and it's very interesting, is the, is the women are lamenting, whether it's the Galilean women who were following, but it seems like it's, it's specifically, he talks about the daughters of Jerusalem. And uh, using, using these ladies who are lamenting along the way, some have said that they're uh, possibly people who are along the way trying to help the person who's being crucified, giving them either something to drink or, or wiping up uh, blood for them or trying to, you know, if, if their eyes were, were covered in sweat, they would wipe off. That's a possibility, but it really seems here that there's a group of ladies who are lamenting over what Jesus Christ is going through. And Jesus takes a moment in the middle of his, his passion walk and, and he looks at them and says, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall be. Blessed are the barren and the wombs that shall never bear and the, the, the paps or the breasts that shall never give suck. They shall begin uh, to say to the, the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree or a tender, a tender plant, a righteous and innocent one, what shall be done uh, to the dryer, to the aged, uh, to the aged one? And, and Luke here, and Jesus is talking about uh, this whole dynamic. Jesus is giving this final lament for Jerusalem. He's going to use the daughters of Jerusalem as a picture of Israel as a whole. And as Israel here is, is headed for difficult times, he's looking, he's saying, you're weeping for me, but you need to stop weeping for me, and you need to start weeping for yourself because something is coming here 
whether it's a, there's, a, there's a near and maybe an ultimate fulfillment of this, this prophecy that Jesus is giving. Most commentators, most people see this as a, he's going to be referencing uh, the, the Romans laying waste to Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, and when, if you, you read the historical background of what happens at that time, when Titus Andronicus comes in around the city, he lays siege. It gets to the point where there's no food in Jerusalem. There's no water. They cut off Hezekiah's tunnel so that water can't be flowing underneath uh, into the city. And they, they literally, it gets to the point where when you start reading, it goes back to that Old Testament idea where they begin turning to some to cannibalism, some to eating human excrement in order to try and live. Uh, it gets to that point in 70 AD until finally Titus comes in and just tears down the raw walls, lays waste to the city. And it gets to the point where Jesus is looking even and saying, it's gonna, you're weeping for me, but because of your rejection, because of your despising of God and not listening, there is a, there is a chastisement, there is a judgment coming. And he looks and he says, you're headed for difficult times, verse 28. Stop weeping for me. He says, for, for behold, the days are coming. Uh, there's such a, look at, look at the reversal. Now, now we live in a day where we're much more common and we're, we're much more uh, used to the idea of not calling, if someone is, is barren and unable to have, we have children, it would be a foolish statement. It's a wrong statement for us to look and say, you're just cursed by God. You can't have children. So therefore, you're, you know, you're, you're not right with God. That we, we understand that more. But in the, in the biblical times, it was very much considered children were the blessing. If you didn't, there was something, and they would often call that a curse or something was wrong. And the, and the ladies would take that very serious, especially in the Old Testament, New Testament time period. And so they're looking and saying, this would, this would be considered a curse if you were barren. But now Jesus is saying that person is going to be blessed. It's going to be blessed for those who, have bar- who are barren. It's going to be a blessed thing for those who were never able to nurse a child or to raise a child up because the times are so difficult. And I do think as much as even with the 70 AD, there is that future aspect too for that, that horrific time during the tribulation, even when we, we find that even coming out, coming out again. But it's this great reversal that, that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, you're weeping for me, but you've you got a misplaced lament. And he's looking at Jerusalem and saying, I, I wish that you would, you know, do this. In fact, he, he quotes then out of Hosea chapter 10, uh, in verse number 8, where he talks about that the, the mountains may fall on us, the hills may cover us up. In Hosea, it's, it, there's this rejecting of idols that, that occurs there, and so they're going to they're gonna feel that. Here, there's a rejection of Christ, and he's looking and saying, those who reject Christ, you're going to find that the, the judgment, the, the difficulty is, is far greater and so there's, there's this that happens. And then in verse 31, they, they, there's a question that comes up on who is the they in verse 31. For if uh, they do these things, is it, the, is it the Romans? Talking about if the Romans do these things, which potentially historically you're going to see that the Romans do come in and lay waste uh, to the city. But uh, another very viable option is that if God is doing these things to the green tree, if God will not spare Christ, how much more is he not going to spare the unrighteous, those who reject Christ? And as he's going to the cross, he's still lamenting over the rejection of his own ministry, of the rejection of God's plan for the people. And uh, it, it just amazes me how many times I've skipped over, skimmed over this section. Part of it because, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when you get prophecy stuff, you sort of like read through and it's like, okay, we're not in a prophecy conference. I'm not going to understand that. So I jump forward and I jump, jump ahead. But it's interesting to me that even in the midst, and we're going to see that coming up again in the words of Christ, 
where his, his continual passion, his continual thought is not just about his suffering, but it's about the people that he's suffering for and on behalf. So he, he laments over that. Now, eventually we know Jesus gets up onto the cross. They put him on there. And he's on the cross at about 9 a.m. Um, Mark 15 will highlight that for us. And he hangs there until about 3, 3 p.m. or a total of uh, right around six hours on the cross, which is very, uh, it's a very quick death, which I think highlights, and we'll see in a, a couple other moments here too, Christ's life was not taken from him. Christ willingly laid down his life. And when he was ready and it was time in God's plan, after all had been born, after all had been completed, he is the one who willingly says, I give up my life. No one took it from him. The crucifixions two and three days later. And the, the Jewish leaders even understood that because they eventually go to Pilate and ask him to do what to, Jesus, uh, to the bodies of the people? To, to, break the, to break the legs so that they, they can expedite the, the death because they don't want the bodies to potentially defile the area during, during the Passover time. So during this time, uh, he's going to speak seven different sayings, and that's where we're going we're to park a little bit today, uh, looking at the different sayings of Christ on the cross. Even though Pastor's done a series on that recently, we're just going to quickly look over it. Uh, there's this supernatural darkness that, that comes over the area. Uh, as far as we know, it seems to be a general over that area, looking for a worldwide, we, you look through historical documents, there's not a whole lot that says it was a worldwide darkness, but potentially over, over the land of Israel during that area. There was a supernatural darkness, which in actuality is very, uh, very much a miraculous aspect to have a, a localized darkness, very similar to like what happened in Egypt, whether that was more of a blindness, but this seems to be the, the nature weeping and crying out in the morning and, and all of that aspect happening there. But when we look at everything that's happening around the cross, I think it's important sometimes to get the full picture. Sometimes, and I think obviously the focal point of the crucifixion is very clearly Jesus Christ. But what about what's happening around as well? There's, there's those people who are around that, the, that are um, going to ridicule him. They're going to be against Jesus Christ. They're going to mock they're going to they're gonna put him down. Uh, we have, we have the, uh, the religious leaders who are, who are sitting there. You'll notice in, uh, in 23, chapter 23, you're there. Go down to verse number 35. It uh, talks about, And the people stood there, behold, and they were deriding him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, uh, if he be the Christ. And so they're, they're mocking him. The soldiers are going to mock him. They're going to offer him that, that vinegar uh, and, and the, uh, the painkiller in order to try and numb that pain. But he's going to do it. He's going to push away. And they're even saying, all right, you're the king of the Jews. Save yourself. Come on, you're the, you're the one. And there's this constant mockery. And as Pastor mentioned too, we often, we often picture the crosses. Okay, he's, he's way up here. And, you know, they're all way down there and, you know, maybe he couldn't hear them or not, but that's very much not the historical case where it would just be a few, maybe a few inches to a foot or two off the ground at the most. So, so you can hear anything and, and people would walk by. What they would do is, and, and the processions would often, when somebody was uh, being punished by crucifixion, they wanted it close. So very similar in our, in our culture today. If, if someone's found guilty of a crime, Oftentimes, there's the opportunity for the family who was wronged in the crime to, to make a final statement or to say something to the individual. 
this was one of the things that they would do. They would allow people to make a procession by and to point up and to say, you did this to me, or they can mock, they can ridicule, they can lay into the individual and tell them how they've wronged them or, or vice versa, you know, Mary and John at the feet of Jesus Christ crying out. So it wasn't something where there was a great distance kept. This was a, this was a very personal uh, death. Even though it became very awkward, you know, as, you know so, so you're sitting there, you're, you're, you're naked before all these people, you've been walking around, you know these people intimately as friends, as individuals, and here they come by. Here come the mockers running by, the Jewish leaders. The, the irony is, save yourself, he could have at any moment. We know that he could have at any moment called 10,000 angels and had them swoop in. He wouldn't even need 10,000. He could have called one. And it would have, I mean, one angel does what to an army of Assyrians? I mean, lays waste to them. All, all, all Christ would have had to do is say the word. And yet we continually see his desire for us, his desire for people as he, he knows the Father's plan. He understands he's going to submit to that. And he, he hangs there on the cross. There's also the two thieves who are on the cross. They've, they've been marched up with them, and, and Luke highlights that as well as the others, that there were also two thieves, two other criminals who were going to be uh, crucified along with Jesus Christ. And at first we know the story. They both are ridiculing him. They're both saying, yeah, you, you, real good, king of the Jews. You saved other people, and that keeps coming back to it. But you can't rescue your own self. You can't get yourself off the cross. You're up here just like us. You're a criminal just like us. And uh, it's interesting how... Oftentimes, our testimonies, we get fearful to share our testimonies because we know how we've lived and we know that our friends or our coworkers may look and go, you're just like us. And I think it highlights the fact, and we see through Jesus' testimony, the way he responds to individuals, that he, he doesn't offend. He does not have a testimony that can be held against him. And we need to be continually working to, to live righteously so that when we do share the gospel, when we do share our faith, people can't use that, that same argument, that same one that's been being used for thousands of years, you know, the, to use it against us. After a bit of mockery, and we know that the one does eventually defend Jesus Christ. He looks and says, you know what? Hey, we're, we're up here because we deserve it, but you can tell this guy doesn't deserve it. And he begins to admit who Jesus Christ is. He understands uh, that he is, he is the Christ. We'll look at all that in the middle. One of the questions that, that has to happen is what, what changes the thief's mind? Maybe he heard of Jesus. Maybe he'd you know, been around in the area when Jesus was walking through. He performed miracles. Maybe he's watching how Jesus acted throughout the time. Maybe how he responds to the other people as they're walking by and spitting in his face and mocking him. And he's constantly saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So there's this, this pattern that as he's watching Jesus's grace in the midst of a very difficult and cruel time, that's beginning to pay off. And, and we've highlighted many times, pastors, when he went through the whole series on trials and difficulties, oftentimes how we handle trials, it ends up being a greater light and a testimony to those who are around us watching us go through those trials and using, using our grace and using our, our dignity and our, our righteousness to go through the hard times. And as we go through those hard times, allowing other people to see our good works and they may glorify their, their fathers with them. There were other people at the cross as well. So you have the Jewish leaders, you have the soldiers, you have the two thieves. This isn't just a, 
you know, a couple people go out and they get, you know, they get crucified and people, a couple, oh yeah, there's that crucifixion. This was, this was borderline mob scene that's going on. People are all around, some for, some against. So now you have different people, those who are sympathetic to, to Jesus Christ. You have Mary. There's, it must, Mary must have been the common name of the day because everybody is named Mary. There's Mary, there's Mary Clopas, there's Mary, you know, the mother of James, the last. There's, there's all these different people. There's Luke 23, as we talked about a little bit already, but other people that came together to the place and uh, it, says, it says in verse 48 that they're, um, they're, smiting, they're smiting their breast. And it says that these people, that is a sign of remorse. We don't, we don't do that much anymore. But they would literally, and it's not just like, oh, I feel bad. It is when they would do it, it would be this hard wailing on the chest, crying out and saying, this isn't right. This is wrong. We're, we're, we're in remorse. We wish your suffering wasn't as bad. And so there, you have these people who are mocking. You have these people hanging with him who are ridiculing. You have other individuals who are, you know, trying to give him something to, to sort of laugh and say, here, here, make yourself feel better. And then you have people around who are, who are smiting themselves, who are crying out, seeing the remorse. You have his mother who's there. And this is done all publicly. This isn't done in, in, in Herod's palace or in private, Pilate's private area. This is out on Golgotha, on that hill uh, that's, that's taking place here. And it, you look here, this may include many who benefited and appreciated Jesus' ministry. Who are these people? That's, that's often the question. Is it only a specific people? We know that, we know that uh, the gospel writers highlight that there were ladies from Galilee who came all the way down. So they have people, people from the northern region, miles and miles and miles away who are present. You have friends who are present. You have family who are present. Maybe some just of the general populace who maybe they've experienced. Maybe Jairus and his daughter are there. Maybe Lazarus, Mary, Martha are there. We, we, we're not giving all the names, but we've seen it happen here. When somebody who passes away who's had a huge impact in our community and it's a quick tragic death or it's, it seems to be a, a situation where it's, it's more dramatic in a, in a passing, unexpected, the, this, this auditorium fills up. People have had inroads into people's lives and have built friendships in the communities. We see that happen. How much more for a man who's walked through the streets, who's healed people, who's, who's taught thousands of people, who fed at one time probably close to 10,000 people with, with food. Word got out that, that he's about to be crucified. The one we love, the one we follow, the one we, we enjoyed listening to. Now he's being crucified. I don't believe that personally that this was just, you know, 15 or 20 people around. I believe that, that Jerusalem was very well aware of what was going on. And there were numbers of people who were, who were coming there to, to see Jesus. And it seems like, you know, many who've, who've changed their mind, who maybe have followed after Christ, who were re- rejecting, we know that this is going to happen because we have the centurion who's there later on at the end of the, you know, the end of the passages. He's going to cry out and say, hey, this, this, this man is righteous. He is the son of God. There are those who are going to follow and watch and observe. And we know that only, only days later, about 40 days later, there is going to be a massive revival that's going to take place in the city of Jerusalem with Pentecost. So, so we're going to have all these things starting to, to really ramp up speed, and people are seeing all of this happen uh, very quickly. 
There's, there's his acquaintances, the women that followed him, as we mentioned in Luke 23. So there's, there's a lot of different people around the cross. Don't, don't picture in your mind just Jesus there and nobody around or a few people around. There's, there is a scene here of many, many, and the, the writers are trying to highlight there are a lot of people present uh, when, we're, when we're going through this, this difficulty. So there are, also, there are also some sympathetic members of the, uh, the Sanhedrin. Who would, be, who would be probably the two most popular that we know of? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, yeah. We know that, we know that they're present, and we know that uh, very quickly here, whether they're right at the cross or they're in the area because they're gonna, Nicodemus is going to make burial preparations, when John's gospel, John 19, he starts talking about that Nicodemus is going to carry 100 pounds of burial spices and linens. I mean, it's not just like, okay, when, when it comes to burial time, it's not like, all right, let's just sprinkle a little incense around him. This was a full-out burial for, for this man. And then Nick, uh, Joseph is going to go to Pilate. He's going to muster up the courage to go into Pilate and, and to talk with him and to ask him. So we have Joseph. Uh, he's the one who took the body. We'll talk about the tomb here. Nicodemus, John 19. The Galilean women, again, as we mentioned, down from the north. Not in, we're in Jerusalem now. We're not, we're not in the northern area where Jesus was. He's come back down, and now we're in, we're in the southern area in Jerusalem, and yet there's these ladies who seem to be following, maybe family members, maybe uh, family members of the other disciples, but they're following after Jesus, watching after him. They're going to help with the burial as well. We know that the Galilean women come back up in the, at the end of the, the, end of the account, uh, Luke 23, toward the end. And then after Jesus is buried, when Joseph, Joseph and Nicodemus placed Jesus in the tomb, it says that after the soldiers are there, the Galilean women were also there. So they were all aware where this tomb was, which is actually a really important thing because one of the conspiracy theories behind Jesus, you know, going, you know, the, them seeing the empty tomb is that they didn't know where it was. They went to the wrong tomb. No, it's, it's very clear these ladies knew where the tomb was. They had observed, they were watching the, the tomb and watching what was happening. So, so they knew all about that. There was Mary Magdalene, which, you know, I was, I was really trying to focus for a second on Mary Magdalene. It's, it's very interesting that you have somebody who was so far considered gone by her society, and gone in the sense of if, if the religious organization, the, the, the Sanhedrin or the, the synagogues of her area would have looked at somebody like Mary Magdalene and said, no hope, She's made all these lifestyle choices that are so bad, and she is so far gone. I mean, she's potentially a prostitute. She's somebody who was living heinous before God. There is no hope for this woman. And yet through the power of Jesus Christ, through the hope of the gospel, and through following after him, we find her at the foot of the cross. We find her in this completely restored state with Jesus Christ. I think that's a great lesson for us to be thinking about when we, when we hear anything. There isn't a person who is too far gone for Jesus to turn around, for the gospel to resurrect, you know, spiritually, for the gospel to have impact. We don't, we don't give up hope. We look and we say there is hope through Jesus Christ, through the preaching and the teaching of the word and the gospel. Allow the gospel. You may look at somebody on the side of the road and you're like, too far gone. They don't need the, no, they need the gospel. You know, even James says, hey, true religion's this, 
that you, that you minister to the widows, to the fatherless, those people who cannot give back, you can't get anything back from them. Those are, those are the people that they really need the gospel. They really need us to be able to help them. And so Mary, it's just, it's a really, it's an individual who at times in my life, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't study. That's, you know, no, she's a great, great character to study, to reflect on, and to look at the hope that comes through even the most difficult of circumstances through Jesus Christ. You have Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. You have the mother of James and John, probably Joanna is her name. But you have, you have all these different individuals. There's a mixed crowd of supporters. There are critics. They're swaying, you know, some are swaying to Christ through the process. All of this is going on in the midst of Christ's death. And what happens here is in the middle of his death, um, I don't know what was on that slide, but we'll, uh, we'll go forward with it. What is this passage? Sorry about the slides. I don't know what happened. They were working at 8.30 this morning, but I don't know. What, is, what are all these passages? Let's, let's, uh, let's talk about what these passages reveal to us about Jesus Christ. So this is going to be... Uh, all right, this is... Uh, let's go to the first... It's going to be in order here. So we'll go to Luke 23. Sorry about that. This, uh, there, there was a picture down there. It says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But we'll, we'll just look at, the, we'll look at the scriptures here and what it says. Luke 23. We're still there. Uh, Go down to verse 34. Uh, Luke 23, 34, we have uh, Jesus Christ looking and he says, after all of this, he's hanging between the two, the two thieves, one on the right, one on the left, and he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is a, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 as we read through where he's going to make intercession on our behalf of the transgressor. He was there. He was unusual for Christ in that he often took the authority to forgive sins. And now he's asking the Father to forgive their sins. Because he, at this point, is taking on our sinfulness. And he's saying, Lord, forgive them of these sins. Now, whether that is him saying the sins that are being heaped on him for all of eternity, Lord, forgive them of these sins. Is it to the Romans, forgive them for their transgressions and how they're dealing with me? Is it, Lord, forgive these Jewish leaders for the way that they have treated me in this unfair trial throughout the night? Is it, Lord, forgive these individuals who are coming before and are having a change of heart and mind? Lord, forgive the individuals who are on the side of me, who are mocking and ridiculing me? And I would say, through all of that, the answer is yes. Because he's taking all of that sin, all of humanity in a divine way, all of our sin and placing it and heaping it upon him and bearing it in a, in, a, in a divine way that only he could do. And as he's looking, this, the phrase is used. It's not just a one-time statement. Some of the other statements we're going to read when we get to it is finished. It is, a, it is a definitive statement. This is a perpetual thing as he's saying it over and over and over and over again that it's multiple times through his crucifixion he's crying out and saying, Father, Forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. They don't even understand the full ramification of what is going on here. Lord, forgive them. And really, isn't he practicing what he's preaching? He's preached, bless them that curse you. And here are these people who are mocking, who are ridiculing, or shoving, shoving stuff in his mouth, trying to get him to drink vinegar and mocking him. 
people hanging with him for guilt that they deserve. And they're mocking him and cursing him and ridiculing him. Yet he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We should be willing to forgive those who hurt us. I think that's a great truth to come from the lesson of Jesus Christ as he's sitting there. We need to. We need to willingly say, hey, they have, they have hurt me. They have wronged me. In their sinfulness and their wickedness, Lord, help me to forgive them. Even if they haven't asked for it. I think that's a mighty lesson in forgiveness. How many of those people around are truly, genuinely asking Christ to forgive them? There's a number that aren't. You just take that group of people that are there. Those religious leaders aren't asking for forgiveness. Those Roman soldiers are laughing and seeing how much they can make this guy suffer. They're not asking for forgiveness, and yet Christ in his humanity and Christ in his divinity looks and says, forgive those who are hurting me, who have wronged me. Um, and that, I think a great, great truth is we should pray in a crisis. You're in the midst of difficulties, pray. And that's what he's doing. He's, he's highlighting that truth. Let's go on to the next one. The next, the next phrase that comes up uh, chronologically, that's the first one. It happens multiple times over um, the, the aspect. But Luke's going to keep going here down in verse 43. He's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's highlighted about the, uh, the two individuals. And I, I love, you can see the personality of the different gospel writers. You know, pastors highlighted Matthew dealing with the Jews, uh, Mark, more of the world in general. Mark is very much a no-nonsense, let's get to this type of guy. It's very much a gospel of action. It's short, it's terse, it's quick, it's to the point. And then you get the physician, who like is going to have everything detailed very clearly. And Luke uh, is very, very much uh, detail-oriented here. And he gets into this conversation uh, with, with, the, uh, with Jesus and the, uh, the two thieves on the cross. And um, as, he's, as he's there, go down to, to verse uh, 39. It says, one of the male factors, one of the, the uh, criminals there was railing on him. If you're the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other now is rebuking him. Remember earlier, both of them were, they were both mocking Jesus Christ um, earlier in the, in the account. But now they're going to look and say, if thou be the Christ, save us, save thyself. And the one looks and says, don't you fear God, seeing that you're in the same condemnation? We're, both, we're all up here. And yet, this guy, this one in the middle, he is very much not guilty. He says, he, he, the, verse 40, there's this big but, this, this change that happens there. But the other answer, there's this change, this contrast that happens. He's going to identify Christ as Lord in verse number, verse number 40. He says, don't you know that fear God since you're under the same condemnation? He's, he's, he's ascribing Godship to Jesus Christ. He's like, don't you fear? Don't you fear this guy? He's up here and he's going to confess. He's going to admit his sinfulness. You can see the gospel just permeating through even the quick conversation of this individual. He recognizes Jesus as God. He recognizes his own sinfulness. He's like, I deserve to be up here. I have done wrong. We, we are sinful. We are, we are wrong. And yet, he, he, somewhere in here, he believes because Jesus looks and says, uh, he looks at Jesus, sorry, verse 42, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's an element of faith and belief here. And uh, I, love, I love this passage because it clearly lays out the gospel. There's, a, there's an aspect where he identifies himself as a sinner. 
He understands who God is. He identifies him as Lord, and he believes on Jesus Christ. He's asking him, he's asking Jesus, remember me when you go to, we know you're going to paradise. We know you're going there. We want, I want you to take me with you. And, and another great reason this passage is so good is, what else did that guy, what was he able to do to attain heaven? There was nothing. There wasn't the ability for him to be baptized. There wasn't the ability for him to, to give money and go do penance somewhere. There wasn't the opportunity for him to, to atone for his own sins and to, to, to do good things in order to merit heaven. This is, this is very much grace at its finest, completely unmerited. This guy has absolutely nothing to offer. He's hanging there just like Jesus, no clothes on his body, completely open before the world, and he's looking at Jesus and saying, remember me. It is a wonderful picture of God's grace because Jesus answers, and in, his patent, in the, next, the next words on the cross, he says, truly, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Highlights that there's life after death. It highlights that, that they, they retain their individual in awareness. He's like, I will, well, I'll see you specifically. You know, today you personally, you specifically will be with us, with me in paradise. So there's, there's an individuality, there's an awareness that, that the man is going to understand that he's there. Heaven or paradise is a real place. We can look at that passage and say, if Jesus is looking and saying, you're going to be with me in paradise, Jesus is saying, heaven is real. It is a real place that you will be going to. We don't have to wait any time to enter into heaven. Again, another great aspect for, for dealing with, with contrary doctrines to the scripture. There's not a purgatory. There's not an in-between state. There's not this time to wait. He looks and says, today, the very day when we die, you will be with me in heaven. One of the commentators I was reading, it's, it's very interesting how even in Jesus' divine aspect, understood how long, again, traditionally, most people did not die on the cross for two or three days. That's the general normal aspect. At this time, that's, that's what these men are expecting. And yet Jesus is in his divinity. He understood that this guy was going to die today. Although the normal pattern was two or three days. He understood, even today, you're going to be with me. He understood that guy and that he, they, were, they were going to be dead shortly. It wasn't going to be an elongated process. Which, for some people... If you're hanging on a cross and you, you know you've got two or three days of agony, isn't that a little bit of hope for this guy to just say, okay, this, I, I can endure, I can push through? So just a, just a little thought as I was reading, I'm like, oh, that's an interesting point. Uh, entrance into heaven is only through Jesus Christ. Again, a lot of teachings that come with just these quick statements that truly you'll be with me in paradise. No matter what we've done, forgiveness can be granted if we repent and we believe. And the importance of being a witness, again, via our reaction to and in our trials. Going back to that question I asked a little bit earlier, what caused this man to change? I, I truly believe it, more than anything was probably Jesus' re responses and reactions. You know, he's probably sp trying to spit back at people who are spitting at him, and Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. So, so you have that, and salvation is available at any time. Some of you have been there on the, on the deathbed of your parents and they pray and they ask and you're thankful for that, that, that conversion even at that, that last moment. And, and you can look and some of them said, well, is it, is it really? Does that mean that they're saved or not? You know, we weren't able to see him bear fruit. Neither was this man. The only fruit was belief at that point. And so, so you hang hope and you, you have hope that, that that deathbed conversion, so to speak, 
where they, they pray and they trust. That's the hope you hang on. It's very similar to this man and Jesus' word saying, you'll be with me in paradise today. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work through it. You, 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 your belief, your faith, it is sufficient when it's in Jesus Christ. The next one, as they're sitting there on the cross, this man, this man repents. There's, there's two individuals. There's more, obviously, but we know of two specifically at the, uh, close enough in range, probably near the foot in John chapter 19. So we'll go over, to, over in John chapter 19. We have, uh, we have Jesus, Jesus there looking up on the cross. As he's looking down, he looks, uh, verse 26. He says, woman, behold thy son. Then he said to the disciple, behold thy mother. So we have, uh, and, and often in John's gospel, John is referred to as the disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved or the, the beloved it's just his way of, rather than constantly saying, John, 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 he's just using it as a different way to say it graciously uh, as he's there. Jesus, even in the midst of his trial, he's seeking to uh, follow scripture, that you, uh, you honor your parents even when you don't feel like it. He looks and he says he has great compassion for his mother, even uh, at an independent age. Jesus is not, he's, he's older. He does not typically in our mindset, you know, you get to a certain age, it's like, all right, my parents are independent. I'm independent. I don't have to honor. I don't, or I have to honor, but I don't have to always look out for them. I, I don't believe that's biblical. I believe that's an American mindset. Biblical mindset, we have a responsibility to be caring for uh, our parents and our individuals. And he did. He sought for their care. The, the word woman, like, it's, it's, it seems derogatory to us, like woman, you know, but the idea here, the, the translation, another one would be dear lady. Or, you know, it's not, it's not the word for mother, but he uses a, a very specific gentle term. He's not looking in a condescending way, like woman, go with that guy. You go with the woman. That's, that's not, the way, it's not the way to read that. There's a, there's a gentleness, a tenderness. He's willing to trust his repentant friends. I think this is important. Did John stick with Jesus through the entire night? He didn't. We know that they fled. They all fled out. But at some point here, John realizes, I need to get back to my Savior. I need to get back to my Lord. And he's, he's back at the foot of the cross. He's not, he's not worried about hiding from the, in the public. You know, Peter denies they, they're trying to get out of the public light. They're trying to hide in the shadows, trying to watch from a distance. And no longer is John watching from a distance. Now he's finding himself at front and center at the cross, looking and saying, all right, I need to be here. And Jesus trusts his friend. He doesn't look and go, oh, you abandoned me. You're probably going to abandon my mother too. That's your, that's your MO. That's the way you operate. You just run away when things get hard. No, he looks and he says, you're, you're back. We need to remember that, that during people who repent, we need, to, we need to work with them. We need to love hopes all things. And as they move forward, we don't look completely skeptical. We know that there's still wisdom and, and trust that is built back up, but Jesus did trust his repentant friends. He did not rail on any friends after they disappointed him. He knew they already felt bad. I mean, even the one who's not saved and the one who betrays him, does he eventually, he feels bad for what he did. How much more for these who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ? And he sought to care for his widowed mother. Again, highlighting, eventually James will highlight it. It's one of the things we have a responsibility to be doing is, is uh, caring, for, caring for the widows and taking care and helping them out. 
So you have, you have that phrase. Um, the next phrase that we go to, let's go over to um, Matthew 27. Sometimes a very, uh, as pastors highlighted, uh, I was the one who got to be on the scathing end of uh, the remark at the, uh, uh, the reenactment when, uh, when I talked about that there was a separation between God and Jesus Christ. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm finishing up the gospel in the last scene and people are walking out and this woman comes right up and is right in my face saying, that never happened. God never turned his back on Jesus. There was never a separation that took place. I'm like, ma'am, it's, it's right in the Bible. She's like, no, God never forsook Jesus. I'm like, but ma'am, and I'm trying to be very as gracious as possible. It's like, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that doesn't mean that God separated or turned his back or did anything like that. It's just that Jesus felt bad for the sins. I'm like, and I'm trying to like, there's another group coming in. I'm trying not to say, hey, there's, there's a wise man in the next scene. Why don't you go talk to him about that? So I bumped it off the pastor and let him deal with it from there. So it worked out well. But, but Jesus cries out here. And uh, he cries out, verse 20, uh, 20, Matthew 27, verse 46, uh, he cries out, it says in the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. It's not that he's just like, all right, I'm going to go into my preacher voice and my God, my God, why have you? This is a voice of agony, of despair, of pure pain and torture. Because at this moment, Jesus is experiencing something he has never experienced before. He's experiencing that separation that sin causes. Sin breaks that fellowship between us and God. And now there's this separation that's occurring between he and his father that's never happened. And now he's like, God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Again, back to Psalm 22.1. That's where he's quoting, even in the midst of the most heinous time of his life, he quotes back to scripture. He's separated from God on our behalf God is so holy, sin is so offensive, it separated even the Father and Son, even for a brief moment. But in that moment, he was able to bear our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. All of that heaped upon him at that very moment. This, I mean, think about, think about for a moment the worst time you've been in your sin and the guilt and the burden and how weighed down you feel. I know I'm not the only one where you've had those moments where it just, it's pressing you so heavy, you want, you want to vomit. You want to curl up in a ball. You want to just ball before, before God. And all of that pressure, that's from one tragic sin in our life. And at this moment, Christ has taken all of our tragic sins all at once on himself. No wonder the despair is so great that he cries out with a loud voice, he agonized over losing fellowship with the Father. I think a great question for us to ask. Do we feel that anguish when we sin? Do we, do we act that way? God, I have forsaken you. You haven't forsaken me. Forgive me. And so he, so he highlights that. The next, the next phrase that goes on, uh, and it's, it's starting to, everything's starting to speed up at this point because it's going to be very quickly quick, uh, things are going to happen very quickly. John 19, verse 28, it talks about Jesus Christ, and he says, I thirst. Again, another fulfillment of prophecy. We didn't, we didn't go through all of them, but it's Psalm 69, Psalm 22, verse 14 and 15. 
It's going to highlight that, that there was a thirst that was there. This phrase highlights that he was human, that he, he still had those natural desires that we as, we as humans have. He was thirsty. It supported his humility, that he was willing to, he could have divinely, you know, controlled the water. He could have had, you know, the water come up and just, you know, do a little water fountain out of the pitcher down there. He could have been like, here, why don't you come up and a little water fountain could come. I mean, it seems cheesy, but I mean, he had that, that type of control. And yet he uses no abilities. He uses no divine ability to quench the thirst that he could have naturally caused himself to do. And yet he allows himself to suffer for the lack of it. Another one. It shows the depth of his submission and the basic areas to the Father's will. The next passage, which, which I think is a, a fabulous, fabulous passage to really to, to go through, uh, is uh, it is finished, John 19. And, and he cries out and he says, okay, it's all, it's all finished. The word tetelestai. It's paid in full. It's been done. This is a once an idea, it's, and it has lasting results. It's not like Father, forgive them, where it's continual. When Jesus says, and he is hanging there on the cross, and he says, tetelestai, or it is finished. It was done. It was paid for. Now, is it our sins were completely paid for? I, I believe, yes. There's nothing any of us can do to add to improve upon that sacrifice that Jesus has made. It's complete. It's done. I also believe that everything Jesus has been sent to do at that point by the Father, it is done. Everything that he has been commissioned to do, he's submitted to the will of the Father, and he's looking and saying, Father, it's finished. It's done. It's complete. All of it has been atoned for. Every, everything has been done. Uh, and so Jesus took care of all of our sins uh, and the penalty for all of our sins all the time. And obviously there was a picture down there that covered up the all of us, us four, which, yeah, anyway. Uh, but Jesus, Jesus paid for it all in full. And then the very last statement Jesus makes while on the cross, he looks, he cries out in Luke 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I'm committing, committing myself to you. There's a trust that goes on. Jesus understands he's going to be buried. He knows that this is all going to happen. He knows he's going to rise again. But he has this, this aspect where he looks and he says, our relationship, Father, is restored. Not even a short time before, he's, he's groaning over the separation of sin. Now he's looking and saying, we have a restored relationship. Sin has been removed Sin has been paid for, it has been atoned, it has been covered, and now the, the relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father are restored. He's confident that the Father will care for him at his death. He's like, I'm committing myself to you. And then he says that uh, he knew that his spirit would live beyond his body. So Jesus understood that the physical death was not the end. He's committing his spirit. So even for us, as we look and people say, well, how do you know? Even Jesus himself understood, hey, there's, there's more after this. The body is not the end. My spirit is committed to God. The real us, it, it is continued uh, before the Lord. And so as we look at those aspects of, of what Jesus Christ said on the cross, we can get a little, little glimpse into all those, all those dynamics of, of what happens for us, how to respond in trials, how to act, how to, how to work through some difficult times and, and moments. Next week, we'll get into uh, what happens at the, at the time after Jesus dies and uh, about the time of his death. We'll talk about the veil. We'll talk about the earthquake, the bodies, all those different things. We'll get into that next week and looking at the resurrection and then into the ascension commissions of Jesus Christ. We'll get into that next week. All right, let's get ready for worship. <laughs>